for our closing event um, on this first day of MAPS. Um, I'm going to be welcoming to the stage quite a big hero of mine. Um, so David Mitchell is um, an acclaimed, uh, twice booker shortlisted author of numerous novels, was named, I think, by Time magazine as one of the most hundred influential people in the world in 2007, and most recently has also uh, translated um, with his wife um, this memoir, uh, The Reason I Jump, and, and its subsequent book. Um, so here to talk to us this evening about stories is the uh, remarkable David Mitchell. I know they're really bright, aren't they, these guys? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the it, lights, it, yes. It, it, it's either a UFO ab abduction or the last thing the rabbit sees just before. <laughs> That's your next book. If that is your next book, <laughs> we want to know about it. The abducted rabbit. When did you start writing stories? When was your first story? Um, I was about, I'd have been about uh, nine years old, and I just read Watership Down and thought, my God, that's good. I want to do that. So I wrote a, uh, well, I planned out uh, an, an, an epic multi-hundred page uh, novel about otters, because rabbits had obviously already been done. done. Well, one to a <laughs> rabbit theme already tonight, I see. Uh, and, um, and I drew the maps. I, um, maps, hey, we're mm. here to, yeah, yeah, great. I didn't plan that. Uh, I drew the map of the journey and where they'd go and, uh, and spent days and days and days on it. And in a way, the map was the perfect novel. And, 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 and the landscape and the journey with a little dotted line like Frodo in The Lord mm. of the Rings and the maps of, uh, at the back of there. And yeah, in a way, that was the novel because I only wrote half a page before it was time for tea or, <laughs> or go and play swing ball in the back garden with my brother. Um, that was it. It's never so been finished. <laughs> it's just be careful what you wish for, Sam. It's never been finished, not that one. Um, but the books, see, to me, and this is, we'd have, we'd have found any number of reasons to um, get you to Medicine Unboxed, but to maps particularly, these, um, your books, so let's, so for instance, the first your first novel, Ghost Written, was a map in that there were a series of stories, each story opening up and concertinaing into another story, and the events in the first story had repercussions for all the other stories and then, in fact, returning back to itself. There's, yeah. There was this a web, I suppose, or, or um, a complex of dominoes sprawling out. Um, which is, a, and then the other books, in their way, have followed that notion of storytelling, not as a confined thing with a beginning, middle, and end, but all the stories connect up within a book and indeed across books. Because I have two completely unrelated responses to that, uh, which I'm not clever enough to uh, glue together. But the first is, it seems it's only relatively recently since the advent of reliable cartography. Uh, have maps been thought of things that are reliable <laughs> representations of reality? Uh, I was a kid growing up in Malvern in Worcestershire and, 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 and would sometimes go to 
Hereford Cathedral, uh, which makes me sound like a certain type of Enid Blyton child, doesn't it? Uh, it was kind of when someone visited and we wanted to show them the local sites or something. And, and so I'd gone to see the Map of Mundi there, which is, of course, totally useless as a map if you wanted to use it to go anywhere. Uh, you'd, you'd be in big trouble, big trouble very quickly. Uh, but that wasn't its point. Uh, that map was a, it was a projection of the medieval mind. Uh, it was a worldview. Uh, so that's sort of part, mm. part one, that's mm. response number one, hashtag. Uh, number two, um, I, I, of course, um, well, not of course, but I don't read too much about what is occasionally written uh, about me. That way madness, uh, madness lies. Uh, but um, I, I have sometimes heard people in introductions, oh, I'm interrupting myself in a detour, but how my wife laughed when... The Time magazine said I was one of the <laughs> in, hundred most influential people in the world. She, she just she, 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 she's still laughing about it actually, uh, and said you're not even the most influential person in this house. I actually come after the washing machine in terms of general importance to the house. So, so don't believe everything you read, really. Um, sorry, where was I? Uh, stories. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, I, I, I sort of somehow sort of get awarded the hat of Mr. Ventriloquist, right? Who can do a number mm. of different voices, and Mr. Sort of puts store or mm. makes stories out of other stories, mm. and, and in connecting web of stories, mm. and, and, and perhaps all my books are sort of one big story as well. That just seems um, not really a. a a particularly merit-worthy innovation of my own. It's just how the world works. Mm. Um, it's stories. <laughs> we, 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 un we understand the wor world, I think, in terms of narrative. Elections get swung on narratives. Um, you can't replace a narrative, even if it makes no sense at all, with facts or science. It can only really be replaced by another story mm. for many, many people. Uh, certainly enough to swing elections, as we've seen recently. Um, so, I would say what I do when I write it, it, it is mere mimesis. It is m merely how I see the world is how I see the world is built anyway, uh, and, 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 and I simply try to represent it then to us, duplicate it. Yes, uh, it, it, I, I, uh, almost the reverse question is the one that's relevant to me. Um, how else would I write? Um, what are larger stories? The books I write could be four or five hundred pages long. What else could they be made of other than smaller stories uh, and individuals' stories, glancing off each other and setting up assonances and rhymes? Uh, a little bit like the way, in in in, in a weird, strange way, um, I, I, I've I arrived just in time to hear Denise's. Mm. Uh, talk earlier, but the way the three speakers since, highly individual, mm. oh, um, well, uh, <laughs> uh, my maths is uh, out of the uh, building, but um, uh, Denise, Sheldon, Tim, mm. um, on the surface, very different mm. characters, very different voices, but you can see how 
and it connects. They connect. And they don't and just connect, though. There's rhymes and internal rhymes. But so. there's effects, aren't there? So you're right. I, I think that's a completely reasonable point. You're you know, what, what's merit-worthy of describing the world as it is, i.e. a multitude of stories that knock against each other, and you'll see resonances. But there's more that you're, you're implying, in fact, demonstrating more than purely resonances. You're demonstrating cause and effect. You're saying what happens over there 400 years ago will impact on what's happening, you know, 20 years from now. Through individual interactions and the cumulative, almost like one of those Newton's cradles whereby the ball hitting that one, the energy of it runs through and continues to knock the ball off the end. I neither want to diss your question nor to denigrate myself in this most public of arenas, but isn't that obvious? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but not everyone's writing it. So if it is obvious and you're, you're seeing it and telling it, yeah, you're showing it. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. and I suppose if it I is obvious, so. so if Priestley were to write, you know, um, what was the inspector calls and, and remark upon a chain of events, then he was doing it obviously as well. Mm. But it, it's, it feels important to note that you're therefore describing culpability. That, uh, there's that the great character in Cloud Atlas, um, the, som the Somni character, right. and that quote which strikes Genetically me, modified weight for us, if no one's read the book. Yes. <laughs> our lives are not our own. From womb to womb, we are bound to others, past and present, and by each crime and every kindness, we birth our future. So perhaps it is obvious, but it's astonishing to see, and you do the obvious well, and because it, it um, strikes you know, important chords and the stories are therefore meaningful. That's going on my next book. He does the obvious well. <laughs> <laughs> I'll write it for you. Thank you so much. I'll do one for you too. <laughs> <laughs> he can't. He can't spot the obvious. Um, so, all right. Well, move it. so given that, given that interconnected web of stories, there, of course, then there are so many different characters in here. So, a multitude of voices and characters. Again, then you know, representing what's real and out there in the world. But th they, they are all. They're not. Some of the voices in these books are pretty uh, nefarious characters. Mm -hmm. uh, or at least complex characters. What you're showing us, and again, mirroring everyone in this room, is that people have um, malign intent, um, good intent, all merged in one person, and expressing in different ways at different points in time. And we spoke about this before, and you'll comment that actually there's something interesting about that in pursuing characters that are complex rather than simply archetypally good or bad. Um two-dimensional characters simply, especially in a form as long as the novel, where you do have space and room, uh, two-dimensional characters are deathly. Mm. Uh, we are not two-dimensional. Mm. There's, there's a little bit of an angel in every devil and a little bit of the devil in every angel and most of us are big, hurly-burly, maelstrom, whirlwind whirlwinds on legs of mixed motivations and, 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 and they wax and wane different times of day, different times of our lives. Mm. Um, or, um, I, I seem to be reaching out and grabbing the adverb merely, but merely, uh, I, I just try to represent people on the page mm. 
uh, as I see them in the world. But it's it, there's an interesting comment, because one of the characters in this book, um, who's a fairly uh, arrogant, self-aggrandizing, articulate author, um, called <laughs> Chris Ben-Hershey. And the... Ben-Hershey. <laughs> yeah. Four syllables. Okay. <laughs> and the, but I, someone asked you, many people have asked you, and wondered if he is. We're allowed to say this in here, because he'll never come to Medicine Unboxed or watch any of the videos, if he was Martin Amis. Good you know? God, no. Yeah. No, no. But they were no. surprised when... Because, in fact, I think your view was that, in fact, of course he's not Martin Amis. It's me. It's David Mitchell. It's the sort of darker recesses of me presented as a character on the page. What I'd be if I didn't have my wife and kids to make sure I take out the wheelie bin <laughs> when the bin van, uh, when the rubbish van comes every fortnight. What you yeah, become. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, you, uh, if you can, if it is humanly possible to work out a way of writing a character who is in no way related to you, <laughs> who has none of your uh, memetic DNA, can I get away with saying that here? Um, then, uh, then I've never found that method. Uh, mm. There are all some aspects of, of, uh, of oneself. Mm. Uh, where including else the dark, including those darker aspects. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's um, it, it's a safe place to explore them uh, in the book. Yeah, I mean, I can be them without being them. Divorced. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not against my will. Not not be the one doing the divorcing. I hasten to add. And again, yeah. you might, you know, the view might be, well, that's pretty straightforward. I just look in myself. I find my darker bits and I put them on a page but actually that kind of um, you know self-knowledge or indeed bravery to stick them on there or to be able to interrogate your own self isn't always um, necessarily straightforward or easy the value in doing it or indeed in us as readers being able to read that individuals aren't either black or white but nuanced complex ambiguous capable of great feats of good and evil in the same breath is there value in that? Is there moral value in writing it or indeed reading it? Uh, in a way, your question is the same as what is the value of reading? Mm. Uh, I think we all know that we are complex. We all know that human beings are. Uh, um, the, the 20 Danes who chased the reindeer into Denmark would have known that they would have spotted that mm. themselves as well. Mm. Um, the novel's an interesting form, hmm. um, about 300 years old-ish, depending hmm. if, if we, whether we include proto-novels or not. They're very good at it. There's some things they're useless at, but what they are good at hmm. is this, is, 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 is to sort of, it, it, it's to create a laboratory of human mud, <laughs> uh, primordial mud, maybe, hmm. and, and perhaps they are golem building units. Mm. You can craft people out of clay and, and, and then give them things to do. Um. They're very good. The, the novels are very good. So say a bit more about that. The novel's very good at it. It being what? Presenting us with that primordial mud. In, within what, what happens? What's the action of that? Um, whatever you get your golems doing, then you can... Well, I don't know if they have any value. Uh, 
one of the best answers I, 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 I ever saw. Uh, it, was one of the, it was one of these rather um, uh, self-referential, urgent, what is literature for <laughs> symposiums. <laughs> and I can't remember who it was, but uh, he was asked a question, what is literature for? And it's one of the best answers to any question. Uh, the answer was just, what is the moon for? <laughs> It's a sort of... um, I.e. it's not... Yeah, there's no intent behind it necessarily, but the effect you're describing is that the primordial soup's offered up. Perhaps it brings us back to the fact that that we are (laughs) narrative-addicted beings. Uh, We understand the world in terms of narrative. Um, People who make a living out of making stories up, which is all I do... Mm. um, make a living because we've sort of inadvertently been able to professionally hijack human <laughs> beings' addiction to narrative <laughs> and feed it in the form of a novel, which is quite a complex drug. <laughs> uh, there are more straightforward hits. And, uh, and the, um, our long-ago Danish ancestors would have done the same around the a campfire uh, about the deer that got away, or, or, or kind yes. of the magic deer, or, 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 or the whatever. Yeah. Um, I do the same, just the novel is a more complex Dawn of the Enlightenment form that, uh, that happens to be a good mirror of the echo chamber of, uh, of the human mind. Mm. Now, whether this has any curative, mm. therapeutic, or investigative, moral, yeah spin-off effects, it may do. Mm. Um, I know some of my understanding of the world has come from novels, mm. certainly as much as it has done from the world's great spiritual texts. When you say understanding, uh, though, presumably you're not talking about factual understanding. Oh, I now know about, or not just that, or are you? Both. Yeah. Uh, I know about um, espionage, yeah. chiefly because of yeah. John Carrey. Yeah. Uh, but I also know about spies and the psychology of, it, of, of espionage, chiefly because of John le Carré. Yes. Um, yeah. So both, both yeah. versions of knowledge. Yeah, and and therefore, so. as a writer or even as a reader, there I- the word empathy comes up here most years, and to what extent it's possible, whether it's the right word, da-da-da. But there's some identifying going on with someone that isn't just you. You're identifying with a character. I'm identifying with a, a character. And you, in writing it, are reaching for someone else's worldview to present? Perhaps if they are identifiable, mm. then they're interesting. Mm. If they are interesting, mm. it's because they're identifiable. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah. I, it, it's, it's not hard work compared to being an NHS oncologist, I'm sure. Uh, that's my idea of, 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 of hard, um, certainly to the lives of your patients crucial nothing is more crucial work so I'm not saying it's hard work in that sense uh, it's hard work in the sense that uh, thinking of Sheldon who was here mm. earlier um, it, it, it's it necessitates neglect uh, <laughs> a character uh, set a cast of the characters are only any good if essentially you're spending more time with them than you are your kids and wife, uh, mentally. Um, mm. uh, well, that's the price. Mm. Uh, and, I, and in a sense, that's what I sell. 
hmm. when the books are sold, hopefully, occasionally, a few of them. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. I want to talk, though, a bit, about, a bit more about empathy then and identification, specifically with reference now to um, people who suffer with autism. Mm. Because the popular notion of... I'm going to pick you up. Live with autism. Live with autism. Thank you. Um, although there is some, fair to say, within that, there will also be some... It's not the entirety of it, but there is suffering within it. It's, it's really hard work and yeah. requires compulsory heroism. Yeah. Um, and already we're treading on eggshells about the very terminology. Yes, That's interesting, yes, isn't yes. it? But the, so let's, the, the pop, there is a popular notion out there that um, that is somehow characterised by a lack or an inability to yeah, empathise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big bad myth. Yeah. Uh, they. Uh, um, I live with someone who has mm. autism. Uh, my son's twelve and is kind of nonverbal or preverbal. Uh, another terminological debate and the notion that he does not experience emotions or sense emotions in others is as nonsensical as saying, you, Sam, you don't know anything about emotions, mm. do you? Or, 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 or you have no sense of humour, do you? Mm. Uh, um, yet, yet it's a... Well, a myth wouldn't become a myth if it weren't highly resilient and catchable in the first place. The myth. So, yeah, 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 the myth. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so we're still with it, uh, and and uh, it's one of my kind of professional and personal aims to help dismantle the myth. Could you? Do you think you'd be comfortable just talking a bit about how um, that awareness that he had autism came came to light and your initial mm, sure. engagement with the medical sure. um, system? Sure. Um, we have a. Uh, daughter who's born uh, three years before our son, three or five, four. <laughs> um, yeah, me and arithmetic long since parted ways. Um, so, uh, so we did have a. We lived with a textbook example of a neurotypically developing child. So uh, we were aware from quite an early point that the development of our son was really quite different. Uh, very little, well, no eye contact really, no interest in uh, storybooks, uh, no language seemed to be catching with him. Uh, so it, it wasn't a, uh, it, 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 it was a, an almost imperceptible slow note. Uh, that slowly increased in volume um, until we couldn't really ignore it anymore. Uh, and so at that point, we uh, uh, contacted the uh, local regional child nurse. I'm sure she, uh, she has a, a more professional name than that. And she uh, uh, visited our house kind of that week and, 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 and then made a referral to a uh, local... Uh, we live in West Cork in Ireland, but um, I'm sure the same <laughs> sorts of service exist here. Um, and yep, yeah, uh, and so a few weeks, months later, we had a, a diagnosis that, uh, I mean, uh, 
son was only about kind of a late two or an early three, so there wasn't much they could say really. But uh, certainly there were early indications that uh, our son was uh, on the autistic spectrum, and uh, so it has turned out to be. And uh, I mean, I just wondered, I'd be interested in your um, experience of his condition ahead of reading and finding the, this book, the Higashida mm. work, which presents us very clearly with an inside view of his mind, which has been transformative. Yeah, yeah, it's been, it was a really helpful book for us and continues to kind of uh, inform our understanding and interpretation uh, of our son's behaviours to this day, really. Um, but before it? So before it, it yeah. Uh, yeah, well, uh, Arison continued to develop in a neuroatypical way, which in a domestic um, sense, as I know anyone in the room who has personal experience will agree and understand, uh, I think it makes life really hard at home. Uh, um, the frustrations he was feeling, the way those frustrations would manifest themselves, um, there would be headbanging, there would be times he couldn't keep his clothes on, there'd be a, uh, well, yeah, the, um, the usual gallery of suspects, and I'm sure you can imagine when a kid does not develop in a typical way. Uh, it was just, I mean, the short version is it was really hard mm. uh, and stressful mm. and sort of a, you just felt the weight the whole time. Um, probably until then, the hardest time in my life had been about 13, 14, not particularly happy at school, but nothing uh, out of the ordinary. And since then, every year of my life had got a little bit better, and a bit better than the one before that. And being 18 was a bit better than being 17, and then being 22, that was a bit of an improvement on 18, <laughs> and 26 was just great, and, uh, and, uh, and it went on, but then suddenly that year, it sort of my general mm. and our general well-being, both as an individual and within my family and wider f family as well, it just sort of plummeted because of both my son's autism and our total inability to know what to do yeah. with it. What do you do when your kids headbang the floor? Mm. You have been told, to a degree, wisely, that if you intervene, this might be reinforcing the behaviour in the future. But then, if you don't intervene, you've got a kid just doing this on the stone kitchen. What, what, what do you do? Mm. Uh, and not knowing what it meant. Not knowing what it meant. Why was Why was he doing it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no one really knows what autism is. Mm. Um, mm. We're, we're, we're sort of two or three neurological Einsteins away from, I think, from understanding the brain that well. It's still shrouded in mystery, but uh, which does not mean at all that we shouldn't be researching. It's why we should be researching more. However, um, there are no answers. Uh, there's best guesses. Um, however, if I can continue, uh, my wife, so, so of course, one thing you do is read. Uh, that wasn't helping that much. It was giving more other guesses about what was going on with our son's head, with autism. Uh, pretty much all the books we found were written either by the, I don't say this flippantly, but the rock stars of autism. Uh, people like 
a temple grandin who's a fantastic human being uh, and I'm so glad she exists. However, she is doing a terminological thing, very high functioning as the jargon goes. Um, um, uh, uh, this is the right audience. I've never come across a good way to describe the scale that isn't kind of vaguely insulting or wrong or kind of just rubs me up the, the wrong way. We've got high functioning, makes people sound like uh, a commander data from Star Trek Next Generation. Uh, low functioning makes people sound like a Sinclair ZX81. Uh, severe sounds like pneumonia. Mild sounds like, a, like a, a, the sort of chicken tikka that you'd get in places in countries that are not used to hot food. It's all wrong. So, so I thought, <laughs> damn it. Uh, I was looking at the Hewlett-Packard printer. I thought, okay, it's magenta, cyan, yellow. Yellow, the relatively Asperger's end. Magenta, the relatively hardcore end. So uh, if you like it, pass it on. It works for me. Uh, relatively yellow autism. Uh, People with that autism were writing the books, sort of big, bright, beautiful, canary, yellows. Yes, it was autism, but they were sorted enough to be able to write books and adults. Uh, other than that, books about autism aren't by people with autism. They're by researchers, which is great. The more research, the better. Um, by the parents of people with autism, useful narratives, they should uh, they have a place too. But it wasn't until my wife was browsing on Amazon Japan, uh, found this book by Naoki Higashida, which was written when he was 13. Uh, he's also non-verbal, like our son. Uh, he writes by, a new verb coming up, texticating, by having a cardboard keyboard and pressing, touching the letter, voicing it. Uh, there's a handy Japanese phonetic alphabet, hiragana, which you can um, transliterate by using two, usually a consonant and a vowel, uh, on the Roman alphabet, a keyboard, so it works well. Uh, and he could spell out words this way and then a transcriber would write them down. He can also use a laptop, but because of the drop-down scroll menus that you need to turn that into Japanese, he finds the, the cardboard one a bit easier. Uh, so, he wrote this book. Uh, my wife got it. It came, and she'd start reading it at the kitchen table, where we do most of our reading, which makes it sound quite Waltons, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And several times, just in the first hour, she'd say, listen to this, and she'd verbally translate um, one of the really short passages or chapterettes that make up the book, uh, because they were strikingly relevant mm. to our son. Mm. Now, the old adage that I'm sure you'll know if you know one person with autism, you know one person with autism is true. However, it's also true that there's uh, a wide, fertile Venn diagram overlap between uh, two people's mm. autism, uh, particularly between, well, often between Naoki's autism uh, and our son's. He was a boy close to our son in age, compared to uh, the authors of other books and 
uh, many overlaps with the autism. It was, ex it was extremely helpful. Uh, it gave us some practical ideas about what to do, and it, more than that, it just gave us illumination about likely things that were going on in our son's head yes. when this behaviour was happening, when that behaviour was happening. Well, that's uh, it. It's a, it's, a it's a description of the internal world. I mean, what comes a map? A map. You're meant to just allude to it. We can't keep okay. saying it. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> they do that. They tweet. Anyway. Okay. Um, <laughs> I thought I was getting a, a, a bonus every time I could get the word map. <laughs> <laughs> I thought my invoice was going up and up and up. The whole invoice? Time. We haven't even talked about invoice. But anyway, look, the, uh, and what the person that comes across, the, the lad that comes across in here, is um, certainly imaginative, mm -hmm. phenomenally caring, caring, and in a way, this is, so, this is what's very extremely moving and painful about reading it, caring about causing pain and distress mm. to those caring for him. Mm. Therefore, in fact, terribly lonely, almost frightened of moving, of doing the wrong thing, because you can see the repercussions unfurling around yeah, him. Yeah. So, a, re a really um, scared but beautiful um, person. Yes. Um, we should also do him the service of not glorifying him. He is a person. <laughs> he's a he w was a kid, and he's a young man now. I mean, there's many. <laughs> Stuff. Many, many qualities uh, about him uh, yeah. that I admire, many, uh, and he's a human being like all yes. of us uh, with flaws. He's no guru, uh, and he, that label is the last thing he wants. What's I that, guru? Or beautiful? Beautiful. beautiful. Well, he doesn't, yeah, want, yeah, he yeah. doesn't want you seen as perfect. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, however, you alluded to two things there. Um, there's, there's a short story in uh, this book uh, that was in the Japanese edition at the end um, that reduces me to tears every time mm. I read it because um, it's so well written. Um, that could not have been written if he, in particular, and people with autism, I think, in general, didn't get emotions. Mm. If they didn't have as direct an access to the periodic table of human emotions <laughs> as we do. Um, so imagination and emotion. Uh, and, both and of those, I think, uh, the book blows the mess. And very clearly people. demonstrates, as you've written, that it's too easy, we do it all the time, to ascribe, to, to understand something as a cognitive um, problem, which is when it's in fact a communication problem, that, that seeing communication difficulties, we're too ready to go on this cognitive miswiring. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in fact, this is communication. Um, if, if, um, if I were doing one of those sort of impossible question interviews where people say, if you could sort of improve, if, if you could do a couple of things to, to usher in the society-wide utopia that I think medicine unboxed is a tiny little momentary outpost of, then the two things that I would usher in would be to... Uh, they are unusherable because they seem to be hardwired into us, but I wish human beings would firstly not mistake corollary with cause, and number two, I wish we would stop 
equating intelligence with communicative abilities mm. uh, and vice versa. Mm. Uh, the trouble that gets us into as a species, mm. uh, my lord. And much more widely that. than simply entirely autism, that yeah, yeah, failure is yeah. wide, isn't it? Yes, 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 we do it all the time. Which, um, even if uh, I'm not trying to plug the book, I'm really not, but one of the reasons, uh, another reason my wife and I were keen to translate it, um, it's almost a peripheral reason for us, but it, it's a central reason, I think, to why the book um, has sold into six figures on both sides of the Atlantic and is now in 34 different languages, which is more than I'm in, uh, is that you can't read it and not think about your own mind. You can't read yes. his account, his map of the neuro-typical <laughs> mind, uh, sorry, of the neuro-atypical mind, and then not think about the neuro-typical mind. He talks about time. Uh, he's, he asked his mum how she perceives time. She explained a lot of people think of it as a line mm. uh, with sort of metronomically, with That's why you shouldn't invent adverbs on the hoof. <laughs> Metronomically, sorry. Uh, with even gradations uh, that correspond to our time words. Um, he writes that he thinks of time as a field mm. in which memory dots are placed, mm. but they're not placed in the same order. They don't have the same relative positions to one another. Uh, as you would have if they were arranged neatly on Linear. a line that yep. corresponds to chronology, which is why uh, some slash many people with autism, well, some uh, certainly exist in this set too, uh, will burst into tears with no apparent trigger. Uh, and a lot of the professional advice we were getting regarding uh, the head banging and the meltdowns is look for the trigger. What's the trigger? What's the trigger? And we would, but some we could identify one. Others, it just blew out of, uh, it, it just arrived out of a clear, warm blue sky. There wasn't a trigger. But Naoki talks about how the worst thing that ever happened to you, whatever that experience was, uh, with his variety of autism. It's not blunted by time. It doesn't dwindle into the distance on our own personal timeline. It's right next door to now, mm. quite often. Uh, so it can hit him as if it happened not 15 months ago, but 15 seconds ago. And also the converse can happen, whereby uh, someone with autism just bursts into hysterical laughter because the funniest thing that ever happened to you, the best joke you've ever heard, the kind of the warmest, kind of bladder control, losingly amusing thing that ever happened to you, also might not have happened months ago, years ago, but kind of right now, that can happen as well. Um, that's an example of one of the chapters that was particularly helpful mm. uh, for us. That just makes so much sense with our own son. The, it's, it's the, the, the descriptions, and they are very, um, you know, short and intense in the book described to me a completely different orientation to time 
space and also to his own body. And <laughs> things that we take for granted, he keeps saying, well, it's, it's very interesting how for granted you'll take the distance between thought and speech. You know, we look at that and marvel. That, that really brings something about, I don't know if Denise Riley is still here, um, mm. because no. what you, uh, I, I just loved everything you said. It was it, sort of your presentation was as dense with ideas that I wanted to write down. I think she might have gone. No. Was uh, she there? Ah, uh, okay, never mind. Okay. Denise, can you hear me? Uh, it was, it was, it was like a white. It was as dense as a white dwarf star. It was astonishing. However, uh, I think our son lives there. That state, that uh, w w where you are outside the time that we all march in step to, because we have the same neurotypical app downloaded at birth that kicks in fairly early on. We, we all sort of march forward at the same speed through time. I think many people with autism, uh -uh, they don't have that app. Uh, they have to approximate that app through wit, through ingenuity, through verve, through trial and error, lots and lots of error. Mm -hmm. They have to work out how to not be lost in time, the whole time. Mm. Uh, I picked you up at the whiff of... Uh, a word you used to find, uh, uh, kind of, they shouldn't be victimized, they shouldn't be glorified, but it just should just be acknowledged that, that the work they put in to live in our world, if, 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 if we were somehow, whatever we are, whatever the mind is, but if our mind were transposed onto a, into an autistically wired brain, we'd be sectioned by 10 to 30 this evening, really. But they live there. Mm. They handle it. Now, they <coughs> have to, but they handle it. Uh, and again, this is something the book gave to me. Uh, it flipped things around. It wasn't, why is my son always having these meltdowns? Isn't it kind of nightmarish and awful? It, 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 it was, uh, isn't it amazing my son has as few meltdowns as he has? <laughs> like, what a hero. <laughs> I couldn't handle that. Mm. You couldn't. We couldn't. Mm. But they do. Mm. Um, and you know, I'm smiling at the memory. But you can see how that can kick off a virtuous spiral from turning your autistic kid into a nuisance. You're constantly having to mm. make allowances for into kind of a bit of a hero. And okay, if you're working that hard, then I'm going to stop complaining. Mm. I'm going to work harder for you. Mm. They pick that up. Uh, they think, well, if you're working, <laughs> and, and, and it just turns a vicious spiral into a, virtu uh, into a virtuous one. I feel, I like to think I might have arrived at some of this myself in time, but as it happened, it was through that book uh, that I arrived at it. Uh, it's not a magic bullet, it's not a cure, but it's, uh, there are no cures, it's not a disease, etc., etc. but it was just a really helpful thing for me. And um, it's a, almost being presented with a a clear description of what you've described, I think, as a different permutation of being sentient mm. moves you from a place from being disorientated, cross-resentful, to, you know, all right, it's all still t very enormously difficult, but to a place of understanding, or more understanding, which is then transformative in itself. Yes. Uh, I think there's a map uh, of... I think there's a map through which... Uh, people in our position, um, when autism arrives in your family, there's a map you move through. Uh, and it's more of a Mapamundi map than a, than a, Google, map. Uh, a Google map. 
firstly, it is denial. Some of you who work with addiction, I'm sure this will start ringing bells. Uh, I think this will resonate. But secondly, there's despair. Thirdly, there's a kind of mortification when you're starting to internalize it, but you're still intensely bothered and cut up that the rest of the world hasn't handled it. It's where if there's a meltdown in your house, you can handle it. But if there's a meltdown in Tesco's and everyone's looking on and you can hear them thinking, sometimes saying, what, what is going on with that kid? What, what are those parents doing to it? Uh, that still bothers you in the mortification stage. Fourthly, you move on to a kind of an acceptance in which, incidentally, you find some really good things, uh, some life-enhancing, not just life-changing things. Uh, the denial and the despair, they are, I think, unavoidable. You've just got to go through them. It's not easy, and you will, um, but you will. Uh, they can be narrowed and hastened with good counselling, with good advice, and the book helped us with that. Um, the mortification, I think, can be reduced to pretty much zero with more public education, with more books and films and discussions and festival appearances about autism. Now, uh, people, get ep people get epilepsy, by and large. Parents with epilepsy, by and large, I haven't been in that position, so I'm kind of guessing and apologies if I'm way off the mark, but uh, an epileptic fit in, or an episode in Tesco's, the parent has to handle what's going on, but there's more understanding amongst the people with the trolleys around them. They've heard of it. They've seen it. They're not blaming the parent. They're not blaming mm. the kid. They can work it out. Uh, what I... One reason I'm so happy to accept your invitation and so why I'm so willing to talk about this subject is to reduce this mortification zone so you can <coughs> get from despair to acceptance and the good stuff that acceptance brings kind of really quickly and not over years. <coughs> I just wondered if we might have a quick reading before we have some questions. Yeah, great so pleasure. Um, okay... I'm a bit of a stander, so let me stand. I'm going to chance my arm and squeeze in two stories. Um, the first one is about... <laughs> uh, I'd like to say I wrote it for Tim D, uh, but I don't work that quickly. Uh, that would have been very quick work indeed, but it is about um, gardens, mortality and eternity. And I kind of need to do this to make the sense of story number two. Uh, they're micro-stories uh, rather than stories, so uh, don't worry, you will get home in time. It's called The Gardener. That shimmering gong of a sun has less than a minute to go before it sinks out of sight. Snowdrops under the holly, virgins in old tales, primroses, lipstick red and butter-naveled bantering, cheerful tarts, crocuses and sheathing around the silver birches, satin white, Persian purple, oil paint yellow. When I planted these birches, they were broomstick height, and now look at them. They tap our bedroom window on stormy nights. 
hyacinths on what I fondly call my rockery, boy blue and girl pink. Through the kitchen double doors, I watch you eating supper, a carrot and coriander soup, and leafing through Country Living magazine. My, how well you look. Your white hair gives you the demeanor of a, of a friendly witch. I'm about to knock on the glass, but your laptop, your laptop screen glows into life. And suddenly, here's our son's hazy face, bringing you news from across the ocean. What a world. He's just had scrambled eggs and tomatoes for breakfast, he says, and his course is just awesome. And oh, what's this? Apparently, a young lady has invited him to dinner at her parents' house. Should he take flowers for the mother, a bottle of whiskey for the father? He's asking you, or could this seem a little premature? What a world. I leave the pair of you to it and cross the patio. The sun has gone. The azaleas are magenta, though the January frosts knock them back a bit. Well, there's daffodils, 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 gormless and happy, clustering thicker every spring. Do you remember how our daughter helped to plant the bulbs? She was two years old and insisted on saying, Good night to every nunyun as she pushed it into its earthy bed. Good night. The robin sits on the handle of my old spade, still stuck in a veggie patch where you left it earlier when you heard the phone go and dashed inside. It was our daughter asking if she could leave Rose and Leo with you on Friday afternoon. From his perch, the robin watches for worms and watches the black cat under the apple trees, but this old gardener walking by doesn't bother him. The robin's breast was splashed red when he pulled out a thorn from Jesus' forehead. Did I tell you that, or did you tell me, that sweltering day in a long-ago apartment in another country? The horny old rhubarb needs a good cutting back before it takes over the whole patch. Give rhubarb an inch, it'll take a mile. The church bell rings across the fields, bonfire smoke, faint like bacon. Wild honeysuckle grows thick around the trellis. Inside the box hedge circle waits the magnolia, her branches snaking off into the gloom. An Indian goddess gone haywire. Ivory flowers are acnid petals. Oh, that won't stand a chance, said our neighbour across the way. Not a magnolia. You're too exposed out there. The wind's too salty. But our neighbour down the lane urged me to give it a go. Why not? The man or woman who can guarantee that such and such a plant is bound to fail or thrive in such and such a plot of land is not yet born. Time proved our neighbour down the lane right, though the magnolia has a secret. My own ashes were dug in well around its roots. You honoured my last request this time last year. The moon appears above the farmhouse on the hill, an unearthed silver shilling when did the robin fly off? Back in the house, you're drawing the curtains. A lamp comes on. Good night. That's the first one. Um, I wrote it for a couple of friends who are artists, and whenever they have a show, um, they ask me to do a really short sort of micro story like that because uh, they're allergic to the kind of unloved English that goes into... Uh, art exhibition catalogues that nobody reads, nobody understands, and nobody likes. So they get me to write a story. Uh, they were doing another show, and they said, oh, we like the last one. Could you kind of do a, could you do a bit of a sequel to that? 
No, he's a ghost. I can't <laughs> Where's the sequel? It's a, it's a one-shot photon torpedo. When it's gone, it's gone. But, however, I thought about it a little bit, and, and, and it's around the time I started getting... I was, trying to, I was thinking about writing about autism as well and, and trying to work out how to do it without being intrusive or exhibitive or exploitative. And I remembered the, uh, the grandson in here. So this is called Lots of Bits of Star. The owl-faced lady at Grand's asks, and how's Leo? Like Leo, someone else, not me, someone who's missing. Her breath smells of coffee and earwax. So my, so my mouth says, coffee. She shrieks before laughing, so I clap my hands over my ears, but her voice still gets in. Coffee? Oh, Leo's a bit young for coffee. Gillian, you won't believe what your son just asked for. Gillian! Mum's not paying attention because she's looking for her iPhone. It's in the car, and I want to tell her, but the owl lady screeches, Leo just asked for a cup of coffee! Everything starts boiling over, and the only way to stop it is to bite my hand hard enough and groan loud enough to make the volcano nice and calm again. But if I do that here, they'll all shout, Leo, no biting, which makes it worse, so I run into Gran's back room. Gran's back room's quiet and cool and smoky from long ago, and the volcano's quiet. I see the chalky bicky tin from last time, five shells up and two across. So up I climb and jump down like Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can, and tip out the animals made in Germany on their tummies. I line them up by size, and they're the same size as last time, and it's nice and calm. The smallest one's an armadillo, and the biggest's an orca whale, and it's nice and calm. And in Grand's kitchen, the owl lady's saying, oh, he's much happier off in his own little world, isn't he? Have you thought about teaching him sign language, Gillian? I was watching a documentary on BBC4. Shush, look, a thousand birds fly by. Wind swimmers, wing spinners, they're leaving without me, so I climb onto the windowsill and turn the handle and smell the garden. And it's alive and buzzing and swarmy. I dropped down onto the patio, like Mum's iPhone dropped, and out of a zebra handbag in the car, and my mouth said zebra, and Mum said, yes, Leo, I'm sure Gran's still got those plastic animals, and Rose, my sister, said, oh, well remembered, Leo. Those flowers have fluttery petals, and when I touch one, they all explode into butterfly bombs. I fall inside how beautiful they are, and I can't get out, and I don't want to. It's the ever-ending story. Then somebody's laughing, laughing like Leo, being tickled to death, and I can't stop, and I can't breathe, and then it's gone. And I'm flat on my back on the grass, looking up at a thistle. If you squint, it's as big as a planet. The trees are talking giant, but trees don't mind if you get an answer, so I watch the splotches of sky and triangles and lines like lots of bits of star. The wind musses the tree. A few little helicopters fly down, and a word appears on scrabble tiles. Sycamore. Fifteen points, that's worth. Half a minute goes by, or, or half a day. At school, I've got a schedule with laminated pictures on Velcro strips, but real life doesn't stick to Velcro as well as the pictures do. My T-shirt's a scaly skin, so I strip it off. The sycamore wanders away, and a much smaller tree ambles up. It's got lots of snaky arms and waxy leaves. It's nice to drum your fingers on. It's nice and calm. That's my magnolia, says the old man with stains on his old clothes. So I echo it back. That's my magnolia looking for clues. I don't find any. The waxy leaves are green, not magnolia. When the old man smiles, his eyes disappear. That's often a good sign. Um, you're called Leo, and this is called a magnolia tree. And now I understand, if only everyone spoke like that. The old man's smoking a pipe, so I wonder if he's Sherlock Holmes. No, no, I'm only the gardener. He looks a bit like mum. Well, so I should, Leo. I'm your granddad. I'm your mum's dad. Mum her iPhone. 
It's still between the driving seat and the handbrake. My granddad says, well, we'd better go and get it then, hadn't we? And I explain it's hopeless and useless. I'll forget by the time we get there. But my granddad says, no, Leo, take my hand. Come on. We walk past the, tra the trampoline and it says, oi, Leo, climb up here and jump and jump and jump and jump. Granddad reminds me, your mum's phone. So we walk on the warm tarmac and it tells me, oh, feel me under your feet, Leo, and breathe in my fumes. But granddad says a bit sterner, mum's phone. So around the front of the grand's house, we get to the car, but it won't open and it laughs at me. I'm locked, loser. You'll forget why you're here, retard. So boil over, boil over, boil over. But granddad murmurs in my ear, you just try the door again, Leo. And it opens. So in I dive and I get mum's iPhone and there's one, two, three, four faces at Gran's window. Gran opens up. The owl lady's saying, but how on earth did he get out? Mum's phoning, what are you up to, mister? And why are you in the car? And where's your T-shirt? And the questions prod and poke and I look at my granddad to explain, but he's not there. And then Rose says, mum, look what he's holding. And mum's not frowning now. Oh, Leo. You star, you total star. That's it, thank you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, David Mitchell, thank you so much.